Hey everyone, this is Andrew, and you're listening to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. Wherever you are right now, or whenever you're listening to this from, whether you're local with us here in Niagara, or you are somewhere else, we're just thankful to spend these moments together with you. And I just want to remind you that the the beating heart of our church, the mandate of our church is to ignite in you, in your soul, the deepest parts of your life, a deep hunger and longing for Jesus. And we believe that coming under scripture is is one of the primary ways of doing that. And we, um, at our church, uh, our culture, our posture towards scripture is not to stand over it and, um, and try and demand from it what we want. Our posture is to come under it and allow it to challenge us and to shape us. And this week, as we are working through James, we have another one of those passages in James that is so challenging for all of us. James is directing this uh, primarily to teachers or those who want to aspire to be teachers, but there's an application for all of us. And I just want to say before I hand you off to um, the message that I preached live a few days ago, I just want to add something that I totally forgot to mention. And it relates to um, this whole dynamic of how we use our tongue and um, speech patterns that are um, filled with the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit versus speech patterns that are filled with the characteristics of the kingdom of darkness or the world around us. And um, often we we have this tension that we feel as though we're wrestling with. And it's the tension between grace and truth. And often, at least for me, the way that I have viewed this in my life is that those two things are on opposite ends of this elastic band, so to speak, and, um, and they're pulling away from each other and we are constantly in this uh, back and forth struggle between grace and truth. But Jesus didn't hold those intention. He lived with those in their complete fullness in every interaction. So every interaction of Jesus's was absolutely filled with grace and filled with truth. He wasn't holding those intention. Um, it wasn't as though Jesus was sort of summarizing or reflecting on his conversations from the week <laughs> and, and looking at those and going, you know what, those ones were truth and those ones were grace. You know, I had five conversations where I spoke truth and, you know, three where I spoke with grace. So I need to balance those out. That's not what Jesus did. And that's not how we are called to think of a living with and speaking with grace and truth. We actually have to have them in their fullness present in every conversation, in every way that we use our tongue. And so, I just want to encourage you right out of the get-go here, before you hear anything that I've said um, in this sermon, I, I want you to know that there, there's a fundamental reshaping of even how we think about how we confront others, how we talk, how we, um, how we respond and reply. We are called to, to be full of grace and truth at all times and not to hold those intention as though they're divergent and somehow we need to kind of hold them together. We need to carry both in their fullness in every conversation. So I also just want to note that um, at a certain point, as an example, I mentioned um, Westboro Baptist and their, their, um, their approach to trying to defend um, a historic Christian Orthodox view of human sexuality. And um, 
that's just the example that came to mind. I, I, and and that's going back years and years and years. I just I, I I'm not aware of or tracking what they're doing today, or how they're responding. Um, but a number of years ago, their response to try and assert the truth of Scripture um, came in uh, a package that was very unscriptural in how it was carried out. And so I, I wanted to bring attention t- to that um, because I even cite one of the statements on one of their, um, you know, on some of their, their sandwich boards and their placards and things like that. That is uh, a statement that's just highly offensive and intended to be derogatory, intended to, um, to be malicious. They know exactly what they are saying when they're saying it, and they know the intended result of that. And so that's what I was trying to get at in using them as an example. And I only use them as an example because they did these things so publicly. And um, so I'm not, I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to pick apart uh, other, you know, churches or preachers or teachers or things like that. So I just wanted you to know that before uh, we head into the message. So without further ado, this is, uh, what is it? Part six in our series through the book of James. All right, we're going to uh, just walk through um, some of the the general concepts and thoughts here and then um, bring it toward an application at the end for us. But just as a reminder uh, to us again, James is writing to real people in the first century and he's writing to Jewish followers of Jesus, what we would call today a Messianic Jew, Messianic Jewish community. And um, these are his friends, his family, his neighbors, the people that he's grown up with. And um, due to uh, the Roman government's increasing persecution of the church, this whole community has been scattered. Uh, they're called the diaspora. They're, they've been dispersed across all of the Roman Empire. And James is writing to them uh, right now out of a pastoral heart. So James is trying to pastor his friends. And what he's trying to do in their lives is he's trying to encourage them. He's trying to equip them to, to know how to follow Jesus in a culture that is opposed to that. They have two kind of factors going on in their culture. Number one, the Roman government is cramp, uh, not cramping down, clamping down on uh, followers of Jesus. There weren't uh, particularly many followers of Jesus, but the way of following Jesus became um, incompatible with Roman government agendas. And so the Roman government is clamping down on them and there's persecution happening. They're being taken and, and forced to leave family and culture and customs and uh, everything that is safe and everything that is sort of within the boundaries of like predictability and what I'm comfortable with, they're being forced to leave because of the impact of the Roman government. The other factor is that although Rome was now leading, the culture there was, was, uh, was infused with Hellenism, which just, that's Greek culture. And that really came from Alexander the Great hundreds of years earlier. And so there's two things going on that are making it difficult for them to follow Jesus. Number one, the government's making it difficult through legislation and, and, and the requirement that Christians, um, you, know, you know, Rome was actually very tolerant of other religions. You could, you could practice whatever religion you wanted to. They didn't really so much mind that, but you had to, in their system, you had to also go to Roman temples and burn incense and declare Caesar is Lord. So you can do whatever you want. The Roman government didn't really care what you did in your own home as long as at the same time you would come and publicly profess allegiance to Caesar. But 
this became a problem for followers of Jesus. Because if Caesar is Lord, then Jesus isn't. And so these followers of Jesus would say, no, we're, we're not going to burn incense and make an offering to Caesar. We're not going to do that. We respect you, but we're not doing that. And the Roman government began to see this as incompatible. This became a nuisance for them. So that was going on. And then the Greek culture, the Hellenism, um, Christians weren't participating in the games in community and public life, in the same, they weren't indulging themselves in the pagan practices of, of the culture around them. And so these followers of Jesus began to find it very difficult to know how do I live for Jesus in a world that is quite aggressively opposed to it. And obviously, James is speaking to real people in the first century. And like we keep saying, James, the book of James can't mean something totally different for us today that it didn't mean for them. But there is application for us too. How do I follow Jesus in the midst of the culture that I'm living in? How do I follow Jesus? And in one hand, be submitted to authorities above me? What does that look like? How do, I, how do I walk that out? And we've seen in the last few years how difficult that can be. Where are the lines that we draw? And how do we make certain decisions on what we do or don't do? And this is what James is speaking to in here. In this book already, James has isolated three key areas. And you can write these down again. These are the three key areas that he keeps coming back to again and again. Here's how you know if you're actually living for Jesus. If you're living what you say you believe, here's the three things. Number one, control your tongue. And obviously that's gonna be the text today. But James has already talked about it a couple times. So that's number one distinctive area that is an indicator that we're actually submitting our lives to the Lordship of Jesus in practical reality. Number two is to care for widows and orphans. Remember, orphans in first century Roman culture were not children with no parents. Orphans were single parent children, single mother or father. So caring for widows and orphans, James would, would expand that to those that are experiencing hardship, oppression, um, those that are marginalized. We can't say we have faith in God that we're following the leadership of Jesus and ignore the needs around us. And number three, holiness and purity in the midst of a corrupt world. These are the three markers that James is saying, these are, it's like the dashboard of your soul, the dashboard of your Christian life. Are these things happening? Are you growing in these areas? These are the key indicators that James is laying out for his community. Here are the things that you can pull yourself back around to so that you can evaluate whether or not you're growing in surrender to Jesus. And of course, in the beginning of chapter three here, James starts with an exhortation specifically to those who are teachers. Brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make many mistakes, for if we could control our tongue, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in other, every other way. Just a few thoughts about this. So number one, James's concern here is not specifically or only for the issues of heresy. James is not talking exclusively here about false teaching, although that's part of it. And that's talked about by Paul, that's talked about in other New Testament contexts. James is talking not only about false teaching about um, but about godly character. He's, he's, taught, he's very concerned with here with how you speak, with 
the nature and the tone and the, the character of what you say, not just that you're doctrinally right, but rude and arrogant and dismissive and condescending. So James would look at those two and go, you can't be doctrinally right and condescending and please God at the same time. Your character is of high, high importance to God. And it's a demonstration that what you believe to be true is actually true. So James is calling specifically here teachers to teach in a way that reinforces the nature and the character of God. To not be condescending, to not be bitter and angry, to not be leveling accusation and judgment. To not think that, uh, I, you know, this, I, you've probably heard this, I've heard this, you hear this thing online. Well, well I'm just telling you the truth. You know, and then, we, and then we just jump right to, well, Jesus said hard things and he confronted people. We jump to that as a justification every single time we speak in a way that we know violates the fruit of the Spirit, the gentleness, peace, love, patience, goodness, kindness, self-control. When those are not present, we then just jump to Jesus being confrontational. Well, I can, I'm just being honest with you. I can tell you the truth. You know, and this is where we get extreme examples, and I'll use this because they're, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what they're doing these days, but Westboro Baptist in the States, right? When you have a sign that says God hates fags, where do you get off thinking that speaking that way to another human being made in the image of God is something that God would, like, like in any way that that would come from the heart of God is so misguided. Number one, he doesn't because he loves everyone that he's made and he wants all people to come to life in him, to saving faith in him. So God's disposition to warn people is not to hate them for one. And number two, just being you know, technically right about something doesn't give you license to express what you're right about, whatever that is, in a way that actually literally undermines the nature and character of God as he's described, especially through the New Testament and the life of Jesus. And so James is saying to those teaching, be careful because you're not gonna be just judged based on the content or the accuracy through which you speak, you're going to be judged based on the character that accompanies that. James is talking here to uh, teachers because, again, I mean, we live in a very different culture, but in first century life, not everybody knew how to read. And they didn't have copies of the Bible sitting on their bed table. <laughs> Nobody was walking around there with like 19 scrolls of, you know, the Old Testament and whatever. Like they weren't doing that, right? So, so uh, scripture and the kingdom of God were communicated verbally. That's how people learned was to sit under the authority and the leadership of a teacher. And James here in his concern for the teachers is concerned also, not just about character, but also he's concerned about unhealthy motivations. Unhealthy motivations of the heart. So teachers who are driven, who want to have their voice heard because they want to be revered by others. They want to be held in esteem. They want to be honored and respected. James is cautioning against those motivational drivers that are not pure and don't come from God. What is your motivation in wanting your voice to be heard? What is your motivation in wanting people to listen to you? Is it so that you are built up, so that you have more attention, more followers, more influence? more authority, more power, more control. What is it? And James is going right to the heart of motivation here. 
James is talking to the people who would see teaching as a prestigious, respected and revered role in the life of the church. And he's saying, if you're seeking prestige or position, attention, authority, if you're seeking power or honor, sit down. Because you're not just gonna be judged on whether you were doctrinally right. You're gonna be judged on the contents of your heart and your motivations, your hidden motivations. I would say in a similar way, we need to be careful. We, you know, we have the opportunity from these little supercomputers in our hands every day to let our voice be heard, to speak to those who wish to listen. We have the opportunity to express ourselves to wider and wider audiences. And I think the question is not just whether you're saying something true, but are you saying something that carries the nature and character of God in how you're saying it? James is looking out for that. He's here has in mind the destructive speech patterns that undermine the very credibility of the gospel we say we live for. He goes on to say, and expanding just beyond leaders, we all struggle with our tongue. We all do. This is not something unique to teachers, although teachers will be judged more strictly. We all struggle with that. And then he uses this word, if you could control your tongue, you'd be perfect. And that word for perfect means wholeness or integrity. So he's saying, if you could control your tongue, there would be a wholeness, a consistency between what is inside and what is external. But that's where there's this major breakdown for us. Because what's in here and then what comes out of here often are disconnected. And James is saying you need to bring those into alignment together. So he's calling for integrity and consistency in our lives between what is going on at a heart level and what we are willing to type or say out loud. He then goes on to describe how the tongue possesses great power. It can make a large horse go wherever we want it to by means of a small bit in its mouth and a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go even though the winds are strong. In the same way the tongue is a small thing that makes great speeches. James here, is correcting an error for us that words are insignificant. That they're just passing fleeting things. That, oh, sorry, I, you know, I didn't really mean to say that. Sorry, right? How often do we do that? We say something comes out of our mouth and we know, oh man, that is, that's hurtful, that's arrogant, that's dismissive, that's argumentative, whatever it is, something comes out of our mouth and then we're just like, oh, sorry, I didn't mean that. And we move on. And James is saying, no, no, no. Don't diminish the power of your words because they have great, great power. And then he uses these examples, the horse and the bit. This is uh, um, an example of small and great, of small in, in size or stature, but able to control you know, this powerful animal. Probably he would have been thinking of charioteers in Roman Colosseums who were able to guide and uh, lead their horses in the races. And then with the rudder, he's saying it's not just that it's small and powerful, but that this gives direction to your whole life. That what begins to flow out of your mouth will shape the course of your life. This will be determinative and this will shape the direction of your life. The tongue has great, great power. Proverbs, Solomon says it a different way. Proverbs 18.21 in the CSB version says, death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Good and evil are both found and their power is both found in your tongue. 
Do not, Paul is saying, do not underestimate the power of your words. You know that saying, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's garbage. That's not true. Your bone can heal and regraft itself and be as strong as ever, but your words have tremendous power. And James is reminding us of that. Proverbs 25, 15, Solomon also says this. Patience can persuade a prince. And get this, soft speech can break a bone. The power in your tongue and in my tongue is not measured on our volume, our intensity, or our flamboyance with it. It's not measured on our accuracy of statement. A gentle word can break a bone. The right thing said at the wrong time can be destructive. The right thing said in the wrong way can damage and destroy. This is what James is saying. And he goes on to say the tongue is not just powerful on a human level. So he's giving us, you know, the horse and the ship as a sort of a natural sort of this is what you can witness and see. But now he moves to a cosmic spiritual level. He says in the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness, corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it itself is set on fire by hell. So James begins here with this description, this illustration of fire as a description of the destructive nature. The smallest spark, can, it comes alive. The smallest little spark has oxygen breathed into it and it comes alive and it can become a raging forest fire that will consume everything in its path. You no longer have to keep nurturing it. You no longer have to kind of make it do what you want it to do. The thing takes on a life of its own and that life becomes destructive. Again, the smallest thing you say to someone could have years or decades of destructive power. The things that we say are not temporary. Often they continue on. A lot of you, myself included, a lot of us are still carrying wounds from things that were spoken to us and over us in our childhood. These things still define us. You know, as part of like the Freedom Session stuff that we've been going through, which has been incredible, we started that as a staff last year uh, at the beginning of the year. And so we've done it a couple times. But as I worked through that, one of the things that God brought me back to in that was an experience that I had as, you know, uh, maybe a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old at the time we were living in Simcoe. And, um, and I was playing hockey for, you know, I made the travel team, whatever we used to call it back then, the AAA travel team. And I wasn't really, I wasn't a standout player. I was kind of like a journeyman player. Um, and the coach uh, quickly uh, became annoyed that my dad wouldn't let me play on Sundays. And so there was kind of like this little bit of a schism there and whatnot. And, and one week we had a, a family birthday party in uh, Kitchener area and I missed a practice. And I came to the next practice. My parents, my dad or mom dropped me off like we used to do back in the day. You just drop the kid off on the street corner and just show up sometime a few hours later. That's like unheard of today, but yep. So, uh, so I made my way into the dressing room and all my little friends are there and we're getting dressed. And uh, I'm half dressed. I've got my, my socks and shin pads and my pants on and I'm, I'm getting my... All, all my skates are on and the coach comes in with the assistant coach and says, Andrew, uh, we need to talk to you in the other dressing room. Come with us. 
And we got into this other dressing room and he said, Andrew, you missed a practice and that's unacceptable on this team. You're off the team. Go back in the dressing room, take all your stuff off and go wait outside for your dad. You're done. And I went back out of that dressing room. I think I was pleading with him. Like, it's not my fault. I'm nine years old. What do I, I can't control where we go, right? But it was to no avail. I came back into the dressing room. I'm taking off my stuff. And everybody is like, what are you doing? What's happening? Why are you doing that? And I was just making up lies and excuses about what the reason was. And I went outside and I stood on the corner, I think, and just cried until my dad came to the arena, whenever that was. Those words from that coach's mouth set the trajectory of the next 30 years of my life as I struggled to overcome rejection, to overcome insecurity, because I didn't want to be the guy that everybody was looking at. I didn't want to be the center of attention. It, it put me into this, this sort of self-inflicted cocoon where I never wanted to stand out in front of others. I never wanted, even you could ask my wife, I hate going to parties or I don't like dancing. I hate dancing because I don't want people looking at me. I don't want people judging me. I don't want, I don't want the attention because that attention was so destructive in my young life. And literally, it wasn't until this last year that the Holy Spirit said, I want to speak into that. You're not a failure. I'm not rejecting you. You don't have to walk in insecurity and in fear and in shame anymore. But those words from that coach had literally set the course of my life for decades. And James is saying, do not be misled. What you think is insignificant, just a little mistake, just a little flub on my part can actually transform the inner life of someone and not for good. It can become a raging fire in their life that consumes so much more than you ever intended or thought it would. He goes on to say that it, our tongue is a world of wickedness. And here, and when he uses the word, the word world, he's talking about the, the world system, the zeitgeist, the world system that stands opposed to God and his principles, that stands opposed to the nature of the kingdom of God, that stands opposed to the will and desire of God, that our tongue, in fact, can move into this place by letting it go and gratifying our desires to just let her fly, to just give people a piece of our mind, to just rip a strip off of those that we feel justified in doing that. We actually invite the world system that opposes God into our life and our tongue then can be an instrument supernaturally for evil and destruction. It's never just about what we say on a superficial level. The tongue, the tongue straddles this line of the spiritual and the natural. So these values of the world, as we speak the language of the world, as we refuse to resist the cultural pull to speak in the ways that our world does, we become, actually, we begin to embody the world's system. And we become the place from which our tongue speaks and carries not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of darkness. He goes on to say, your tongue can stain or corrupt your whole body. Your tongue has the capacity to utterly compromise your whole life. Your tongue has the capacity to undermine your credibility, the way you speak, is not just about your words. It's actually about the whole being, your, the fullness of who you are. And your whole life, your whole body can be corrupted 
I just wrote this down. We can't speak one way and hope to be seen by others in a different light. Can I speak in a hateful, aggressive way and then be seen by those around me to carry the nature and presence of Jesus? No, it actually corrupts my whole entire being. The way that I'm viewed by others is then diminished and corrupted by the way that my speech patterns form my words. So James is saying the tongue is not just a natural thing, it's a supernatural thing, and it has spiritual power. He says it's the power of hell. The word behind that word hell is Gehenna. And Gehenna was, a, was an actual place that was the place outside of Jerusalem where um, the pagans would go and offer sacrifices to their gods. They would burn offerings to their gods. Gehenna became basically a burning dump. And God is saying, and James is saying, your life can become just this, this all-consuming, corrosive, and destructive reality. So he goes on to give a, a little bit more analysis there. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. So James is bringing us back, and he's bringing his friends back to Genesis, actually. And he's saying, look, like God has given you a mandate to rule and reign on the earth, to subdue the earth. That was God's mandate to Adam, to bring the whole earth under shalom, under the order of God, to turn what was chaos into something that had order and that was filled with peace and filled with life and filled with the goodness of God. And James is saying, hey, we can tame virtually every animal, but you can't tame your own tongue. You can impose your will on and exert your power and your strength on other things, but then when it comes to our own tongue, we struggle to and we fail to exert authority over this little piece of our body. So you and I are called to bring the order and the goodness of God to the earth, but often what we bring is a fracturing and a destructive force when we use our tongue in a way that doesn't honor God. He goes on to say that we sometimes praise our Lord and then turn around and curse those who have been made in his image. Here's the disconnect between Sunday morning, 10 to 12, and Sunday afternoon. Between driving out of here and meeting your first unusual driver on the road, let's say, <laughs> right? You know, you don't want to be one of those people that's like flipping the bird to somebody and then you end up turning into the same church parking lot, right? <laughs> I think I've heard stories even in my own family of that happening. I'm not going to say who, but anyway. So James is saying, look, don't think that you can get away with this kind of disconnect. And what he's calling us to is to remember that the person opposite us, the person opposite us on social media, the person out there, whoever he or she is, whatever position they hold, whether they're in your workplace or they're in your school or you know, they're in your community, they're a, another parent on a hockey team or, or whether they're in government, they're our mayor or city council member or premier or prime minister. Remember, they're all made in God's image and we need to have a higher fear of God's image and the humanity that he's put in every person. How, I mean, and, and I'm speaking to myself here, how arrogant that we think we can tear down somebody who's made in the image of God and be justified about it. Who do we think we are? Who do we think we are to, to attack image bearers of the king and undermine, undermine 
their dignity, and their value. James is calling us to remember that it doesn't matter how angry you are with someone. It doesn't matter how wrong you think they are. It doesn't matter what they've said to you. It doesn't matter what they're doing. They still are created in the image of God. They are a life that has been breathed out by the intention of God, even before the foundations of the earth. They were in the heart of God and he made you, he made your enemies, he made our prime minister, he made our premier, he made everybody you're annoyed with for a purpose. He has a divine calling and a purpose on your life and everyone's life. And we need to be so careful how we speak to others who are image bearers of Jesus and image bearers of God. He uses these words, you can bless or curse. A curse is a word intended to bring about negative results. That's what a curse is. A curse is a word intended to bring negative results. It's a word intended to sting or to hurt. It's a word intended to knock someone down a peg or two. It's a word intended to inflict harm or pain emotionally. It's a word intended to produce a negative result. A curse might be an action or a word that punishes someone. Another sort of definition you can write down there, a curse is to predict, wish, pray for, or cause trouble or disaster on a person or thing. A curse is to predict trouble. A curse is to wish for trouble in someone's life. I hope they get what's coming to them, that kind of stuff. A curse is to pray for trouble in someone's life. To curse is to speak judgment over others or even yourself. To curse is to sit in an artificial seat of authority and proclaim judgment over someone. And scripture is very sober with its reminder to us that God alone is the judge. A curse is to say things like you will never or I will never or you are always, or I am a failure, or it is hopeless. It's to declare something preemptively over someone else or your own life. Romans 12, 14. This is what Paul says. Bless those who persecute you. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Go back and read Matthew 5. You are blessed when others insult you and say all kinds of horrible things about you for great is your reward in heaven when you endure it. Remember Jesus who didn't utter a word in his own defense as he was unfairly whipped and scourged. He had his beard torn out. He was whipped so badly that the bones on his back were exposed, and yet he said nothing. James is calling us to a higher standard, to be the kind of people who exercise the spiritual discipline of not having the last word. I want to give you an assignment for this week. Just super practical. And it hurts. Man, does it hurt. 
but I want to give you the assignment this week of releasing your right to have the last word in an argument with your spouse, in an argument with a coworker, online. Don't even have the first word. Don't even go on there to begin with. But I want you to exercise just a practical, super on the ground exercise of not having the last word. And you will feel, because this ha- you will feel the agonizing pain of keeping your mouth shut when everything in you is screaming, make your point, take them down, win the fight, you know, whatever it is, right? You will feel that agonizing pain of relinquishing and releasing your tongue to Jesus in that by saying, I'm going to offer you, God, the last word. I'm not going to be the one who has it. So James is saying, we are called to be people of blessing and not cursing. This is something I'm learning in real time. In real time, I'm learning that the most effective prayer that I can pray is not that someone would come under the judgment of God. Not that they would come under the judgment of God, but they would come under the love and the mercy and the goodness of God. This has been something in COVID that God began to shift in my prayer life. Andrew, what's going to produce a better result for you to pray for my judgment and my vindication and my correction or for you to pray that their hearts are captivated with my mercy and my goodness and my love, that they would see the reality of my nature and become soft, repentant, humble-hearted people. The most effective prayer that you can pray is not that God would judge those who are frustrating and annoying to you or wrong in your eyes, but that he would bless them. That he would pour out all of his goodness and his life. Assignment number two for this week, for those that you come into contact with that are frustrating or annoying or you know, you have confrontation with, and it may not even be someone you know. You may hear something that comes out of the mouth of a politician this week. I want to give you a second assignment. Would you pray as vigorously that God would touch their life, that he would bless them, and that they would flourish as you do for your own life? Would you pray as vigorously that he would pour out his spirit, that he would pour out his goodness, that he would fill them with his power and his goodness and his life, that he would do immeasurably more than they could ever hope or imagine? Would you pray with the same intensity and fervor for that person that sits opposed to you that you do for your own life? And it takes a bit of work. It takes a bit of struggle. I can say from experience, it comes out very half-hearted to begin with. But once you get a sense of that, you begin to feel the heartbeat of God for others. And you begin to move beyond petty differences and petty arguments and petty distractions. And you begin to move into the place of the beating heart of God for someone else's life, even your enemy. God is challenging us through James to be that kind of person. So to end here, James comes right down to the source of the matter. And he's saying it's not, we don't begin by what comes out of our mouth audibly. We begin with what's in our heart. What you say out of your mouth is just a reflection of what's going on deep down inside. And James, I think, would draw a distinction here because sometimes we can get really good at editing what we say externally while carrying on inner dialogues and inner conversations and inner thought patterns that are filled with the destructive fire of hell. You can get good at editing. Some of you do it through the silent treatment. This is a tactic I use at my worst, right? I'm not going to talk. I'm, 
you've, you know, you've hurt me or you've said this. I'm just going to go silent and quiet. But in my heart and in my mind, my thoughts are not silent and quiet. They're filled with all kinds of things that I it would be embarrassed to say out loud. And James is saying the issue is not only with what you say out loud, it's with what you think in your head and in your heart. He does that by saying, blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers, that's not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No, and you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. What is he saying? Even the smallest amount of bitter water will dilute fresh water and destroy it. The smallest little bit of ungodliness in our character, in our heart, will utterly infect everything we say. You can't have both, is what James is saying. And you've got to go beyond what you're saying out loud and go into a heart level look at this. Here's what James is landing the plane with here, and we will today too. James is confronting us not only about what actually comes out of our mouth, but about our inner thought patterns, our self-talk, and the role of our tongue in our imagination and emotional life. Your tongue is not just restricted to its physical properties. In your mind, in your imagination, and in mine, we say a lot of things. Our tongue is very active in the realm of our thought patterns and our imagination. It's active in what you rehearse and play through your mind. When you are, when you are offended or, or hurt by a coworker and you walk away, what happens? Even if you don't say anything out, you begin to play over this conversation and what you wish you would have said and what you wish they would have heard and what you wish you had the courage to just confront them on and say. And this is what our tongue does in the realm of our thought life and our imaginations. And James is saying it's a world of evil that starts there. That's the root that you have to go after. Not just whether you're disciplined alone with what you say. It's when you're walking away from confrontation. It's when you read that post that, that infuriates you. It's what you're, what you're you know, working through in your intellect, in your imagination. It's the confrontations that you literally visualize with people. That's where the spark starts. And that's where James is going to land with us. Luke 6. This is Jesus. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. An evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from your heart, the source is not external, it's internal. Paul talks about the same issue. Here's where we're going we're gonna to touch down here. Paul talks about the same issue. And he says that the battle for your tongue is actually a spiritual battle that takes place internally. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. I've been meditating on this for months and I still don't know a lot about it, but I want to give you kind of some observations that I have. We are human, Paul says, but we don't wage war as humans do. We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons, to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning. Okay, first key there. Strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. Second key. Third, we destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. And lastly, we capture their rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. The context of this scripture 
is Paul is under attack for his gentleness and his lack of aggression. Paul says in verse 1 of 10, Now I, Paul, appeal to you with the gentleness and kindness of Christ. His authority as an apostle is being attacked because he's not entering into like sort of vitriolic, argumentative, like I'll show you kind of stuff. He's gentle and he's patient and he's kind and he's, his authority is being questioned. And Paul leaves us with some very important things here. So people are seeing Paul's lack of engagement as weakness. But Paul is saying he's going to war in his inner thoughts. That's where he's doing battle. Where he's doing battle are in his inner thoughts. So he says, we knock down strongholds of human reasoning. What is human reasoning? Those are the strongholds of your own logic. So how many times have you said, well, that's just the stupidest thing. The smart thing would be fill in the blank. Paul is going to war against those areas of his human logic. And he's dismantling them. He's saying, my human reasoning my perception of what is logical and what is right, I am crucifying it. I'm bringing it under the covering of Jesus. My perception right now of what is logical and what I reason to be right, I'm taking that thought captive in Jesus' name. I am not going to express myself to you based purely on my definition of what is logical and reasonable. So, guardrail number one, when you are in confrontation, when you are annoyed and upset by others, and you begin to think those thoughts, like how foolish, or I would never do something that way, or what kind of, you know, fill in the blank, you need to begin to take that thought captive. And you can just simply say, I bring those thoughts under the covering of Jesus, I take all of those thoughts captive that are rooted in my own perspective right now because I'm not seeing things from the vantage point of God, and I know it. I have a vantage point, but I'm bringing my perspective and my vantage point under the lordship of Jesus. So Paul is saying that these, he fights a spiritual battle to destroy the strongholds of his own reasoning and logic, his own perspective and his own way to make sense of what's going on around him. His own, another way you could say it, his own assessment. Paul is saying, I take those thoughts captive. What is he doing? He's rejecting his own self-talk and imaginary arguments that take place in his inner life. He's rejecting and destroying the inner voice that validates him and builds a case for himself against another. I'm bringing that under the covering of Jesus. I take that thought captive. Those things that validate me and give me power, even in my own thinking, power and authority over another. I'm taking those things captive. And those things run rampant in us without even thinking about it. Next, he's rooting these things in pride. And he says here uh, that we destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. He's rooting these things in pride. And he's explaining that pride keeps us from knowing the heart of God for the situation. It keeps you from the knowledge of what God sees and says and believes and feels about it. So pride is a barrier to your ability in confrontation. It's a barrier to your ability to know the heart of God and to have his character revealed in the midst of that. Our intimacy, Paul is saying, with God is blocked. 
when we speak cursing and judgmental words on others, even in our thought life. So your intimacy with God is blocked not only by what you say externally, by what you allow to loop and play in your brain. And Paul says those are a barrier to intimacy and the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is not just theoretical information. The knowledge of God is deep, intimate, relational reality. And that suffers when we allow our internal voice and tongue to just run rampant. So what does Paul say? You have to capture your rebellious thoughts so they don't pollute your heart, which drives the direction of your life. Capture your rebellious thoughts, the internal stuff, so it doesn't pollute your heart, which then steers the course of your life. That's the root of where James is going here. Just a couple questions for you. I want to invite you just to close your eyes. And just under you know, the sound of your own breath, I just want to invite you just to say, Jesus, I invite you into this moment. I invite you, Holy Spirit, into this moment. I want to ask you a question, and I want you to ask Jesus this question, just as your eyes are closed and you're with him in your, this private space. I want you to ask him this question. Jesus, what is my inner life like? What do you see? I want you to ask a second question. You can ask this of yourself. What are your thoughts? Or you can ask Jesus this. What are the thoughts that I've had toward those who are hard to love or are opposed to me. Jesus, would you reveal any patterns of thinking that I've had that have grieved you about those who are hard to love in my life? And I want to just invite you just for a minute just to ask the Holy Spirit, if he would just be very specific. He, the Holy Spirit doesn't condemn. He doesn't use generalized statements like you're always or you will never. He's very specific. So you can ask him very specifically about very specific situations and just say, I invite you to examine my thought life about this person or this circumstance. Or maybe you could ask him this, Jesus, have I gotten really good at watching what I say out loud, but neglected to tend to my own heart or thought life? Jesus, is there anything that I've thought or believed in that is opposed to you or your truth? And if something specific comes to mind. I want to just invite you even right now just to say, I'm sorry, Jesus, for grieving you with this in my heart or in my thinking. I'm sorry for grieving you, Jesus, with my attitude about this person or this situation. You can just say, I submit this to you, Jesus. And I bring myself under your conviction and correction. And I ask that you, uh, that you would renew me. And you can say, I just take all of those thoughts captive in your name, Jesus. I resist and I renounce them. And I ask that you would form in me a right spirit.
We just invite you, Holy Spirit, to give us greater revelation and understanding about the role of our tongue, not just in what we say out loud, but in what is going on on a heart level for us. Father, I pray that myself included, we would not let ourselves off the hook because of our discipline externally, but our lack of discipline internally. Father, I pray that you would do a new work in us, that as you teach us to take our thoughts captive, as you teach us to crucify our own perspective to make room for yours in the life of our family and in our workplaces, in our culture and society. We ask that you would reshape in the very deep parts of us your character and that those would come through our tongue as blessing and of life and goodness and patience and kindness. We want to carry truth as well, Jesus. But like you, we want to carry it in equal measure to love and grace. So we ask that you would continue your work in us to do that. Amen. Thank you.